Tonight I want us to do a character study, and I hope you'll get your Bible and follow along with us. We're going to just trace to a number of passages, perhaps more than usual, to just kind of paint a story and tell a picture, give a picture of a character, and we're going to be looking at John, uh, the character, the Apostle John, we're going to be talking about in our studies tonight. John has been called the Apostle of Love because he wrote so much about love. He was the closest of all of the apostles to the Lord. We'll give more evidence of that in a moment. Jesus was closer to some than others. It doesn't mean he didn't love the others or that they were not important, but there seemed to be an inner circle. And of that inner circle, he seemed to be the one closest to the Lord. If our understanding of several passages be correct. He is the disciple that Jesus loved. And I recognize that several Bible students think that's someone else other than John. One of the more common thoughts is that reference refers to John the Apostle. And I think that perhaps is the case. Let's talk about our introduction to John. Let's turn to John chapter 1, 35 to 37. Uh, these character studies, I don't know about you, they help me sometimes to look at Peter, to look at Paul, to look at Moses, look at Abraham, to look at John. And we've looked at John in the past, but I want to go back and revisit John because John is such a unique character. And here we are introduced to John in John chapter 1, verses 33 to 35. And as you read that, if you've got ahead of me, you're probably saying John's not mentioned here. Well, the other disciple, and I'll come back to John 1, but I'm going to just make a reference and we're not going to turn there, but John 18 and John 20 and other passages, John refers to himself, if my understanding be correct, as the disciple that Jesus loved. And at times he referred to him as the other disciple, like the one who outran Peter, and we'll come to that a little bit later. That being the case, this is probably a reference to John. And the text says, and again, the next day John stood with two of his disciples. That's John the Baptist this time. Is that John? And looking at Jesus, he, as he walked, he said, behold the Lamb of God. This is John the Baptist introducing Jesus as the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. I understand that one of those would be John and so here's what I'm learning from that, that John, the apostle, was a disciple of John the Baptist. He would be one of those two men, we think. And furthermore, he was introduced to Jesus by John the Baptist with this phrase, behold the Lamb of God. But you think of one that was the closest to Jesus of all, perhaps, his first introduction to Jesus was for John the Baptist to point out and say, look, behold the Lamb of God. What an introduction that must have been. He was called to the Lord to be a disciple by the Lord. The Lord himself called him to be a disciple. And we see this in Matthew chapter 4 beginning at verse 18. And Jesus walking by the sea of the Galilee saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting their nets into the sea for they were fishermen. And then he said to them, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And then immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, that's our John under consideration, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them and immediately left their boat and their father and he followed them. And so our introduction to John is that 
he was introduced to Jesus and then he was called to be a disciple and he immediately left everything he had and went and became a disciple of the Lord. And so if we didn't know anything about him and we're just introduced to him reading through the Bible, that's our introduction to him. So let's talk about several things about John. Let's start with John the man. What do we know about the man? We'll talk about his life, his writings a little bit later. What do we know about the man? Well, his name, John, simply means the Lord is gracious. And the Lord indeed is gracious. What do we know about his family? Well, his father was Zebedee. Uh, we see that in Mark chapter 10. If you want to turn there quickly to Mark the 10th chapter. In Mark chapter 10 and in verse 35, the text mentions Zebedee, and Zebedee is his father. We're not going to trace every reference, but James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the text says. And so his father was Zebedee. His mother was Salome, mentioned in Matthew chapter 27 and 56, and in Mark 15. You might want to turn to the Matthew account, Matthew chapter 27. In fact, those two counts need to be harmonized to understand this. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 27 and look at verse 56. In verse 56, it says, Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. But the Mark account mentions her name as being Salome. And so his mother was Salome. That may, she was a sister to Mary, according to John 19 and in verse 25, and thus John, our John, and Jesus perhaps were first cousins, and many think so. He had a brother, according to the text we just noted, whose name was James. Now this is the James that was older, uh, or John was older than, uh, than uh, James was older than John, but I'm more interested in Acts chapter 12, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 12 with me. And notice in Acts chapter 12 and in verse 2 that this is the James that was beheaded. When you turn there, the text will say that, that Herod killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Well, that's the James we're talking about here. That's the brother of John the Apostle. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 4 for a moment. In Matthew chapter 4 and verse 21, his occupation was that he was a fisherman. Matthew chapter 4 verse 12 uh, 21 rather, not verse 12, but verse 21, they were going from there and saw two other brothers, James and John, we read this a moment ago, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, and mending their nets. He was uh, there by occupation. Uh, he was a fisherman, a professional fisherman. So we know something about his name, his family, and his occupation. Well, what about his education? Let's go to Acts, the fourth chapter, and in verse 13. Acts chapter 4 and verse 13 tells us, that he had very little education. It doesn't mean he was, an, was a, uh, an ignorant man, but he didn't have formal education, as did Paul, for example, who had sat at the feet of Gamaliel and quite educated. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that they didn't know anything and that they couldn't communicate well. It means they were not formally trained, didn't have the higher education that, as I said already, concerning the Apostle Paul. He was a man of wealth. We're trying to describe the man. We're introducing ourselves to the man, getting to know the man himself. So we know something of his family. We know the occupation that he had. We know something about his education, his family, his name. What about his wealth? Well, his father had hired servants, according to Mark 1 and verse 9. When they left and followed Jesus, they left their father in their boats and the hired servants. So his father had hired servants, which suggests he had some degree of money. 
John chapter 19 and in verse 27, Jesus commends his mother into John's care and John took her to his own house. Well, you've heard me say before that owning your own house in our day and time just means the bank would loan you money. It doesn't mean you've got any money, but to own your house and own your own house in the first century would suggest you had some degree of money and there was some degree of wealth. It doesn't mean you were very wealthy, it just means you have some degree of that. And John indeed had that. It seems that, that Salome, and there is some conjecture here, had some substance about her because she was among those who in the last days were traveling with Jesus and caring for him and doing things for him, so consequently something that she had some degree of substance, which she may have because Zebedee indeed had hired servants. So there seemed to be a little bit of wealth there that not uh, normal for those who were the disciples of the Lord. What do we know about his temperament? We're being introduced to him as if we didn't know him. And we begin to know him and we find that he's a zealous man. He seems to be intolerant of some things and at times impatient. And let's see this from Luke chapter 9. So let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 9. We'll look at verse 54, back up to verse 49 first. <clears throat> and notice that John answered, this is our John we're talking about, answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we forbade them because he does not follow with us. I'm not saying he was wrong in that. I'm just simply suggesting to you that he seemed to be intolerant of things that, seemed, that he thought were not right. Look at verse 54, same context. That when the disciples, John, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? Well, that seems to be a little impatient and intolerant. And that's the kind of man we're seeing. He's a zealous man who indeed is impatient and intolerant. And we see the parallel account in Mark chapter 9. Well, he was called son of thunder, according to Matthew chapter, or Mark 3 and in verse, verse 17, which suggests his zeal. Uh, that fits with this character that we saw in Luke chapter 9 of wanting to call fire down from heaven. He was called sons of thunder is what it meant, the, the name that he was called. And so the, that suggests to us that he was a man who had somewhat of an intolerant and impatient spirit. And yet he was an humble man. We're going to see what seems to be a contradiction of that in a moment, that he, he, he was vying for power on another occasion. And yet he also seems to be an humble man. And why do we say that he's an humble man? Well, let's turn to the book of John that he wrote in John 18 now and in verse 16. And the, we suggest his humility because he... He doesn't draw attention to himself. When he mentions himself in his book that he writes, he doesn't do a lot of talking about me and I and what I did and, and how effective I was in the, the service of the Lord and, and what contribution I co uh, contributed. But he mentions himself as the disciple, either the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. Look at John 18 and in verse 16. But Peter stood at the door outside. This is at the uh, trial of Jesus then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke uh, to her. Who's the other disciple? That's John. But he doesn't refer to himself. He hides himself because of his humility. He doesn't mention himself. Now let's go to chapter 20. And notice in chapter 20, we won't notice every single reference, but in John chapter 20, I want you to notice at verse 2 that uh, text says she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Well, that's John. He refers to himself as the other disciple. 
Look at verse 3. And Peter went out and the other disciple, he calls himself that again. Look at verse 4. Verse 4, they both ran together and the other disciple outran Peter. He didn't say I outran him, but he said the other disciple did that. And you see again a reference like that in verse 8, the other disciple. In other references, he would talk about the disciple that Jesus loved because of that close relationship. And I'm just trying to describe before you his humility. We don't know exactly where he lived. It was likely Bethsaida, which is here on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, because of the close proximity to the other disciples that are mentioned in John 1, and John 12, 21. He was very close to Jesus. He was part of that inner circle. Jesus was close to all of his disciples and loved all of his disciples, but there seems to be an inner circle of Peter, James, and John. And they're mentioned several times. Let's get, let's get this starting with Matthew chapter 17. Let's turn to Matthew 17 and in verse 1. It was these three and only these three that were on the mountain of transfiguration with Jesus. And so the text says when he went off into the mountain or went up into the mountain, verse 1, after six days he took Peter, James, and John. And what did they do? Well, they went with Jesus to the mountain. He was transfigured before them. They were the only three there. Well, there was another occasion. Let's turn over to the 26th chapter, same book, Matthew chapter 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he takes the disciples off with him, and then he leaves them for a little bit. But notice at verse 37 beginning, Matthew chapter 26 and in verse 37, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, verse 37, he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And so this was the disciples, or these were the three disciples that were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, let's go to Luke chapter 8, and in verse 51, there was the miracle of the raising of the daughter of Jairus, and there were only three disciples with him there, and it was Peter, James, and John. Again, I described them as being that inner circle, who were the closer of the ones to the Lord. It didn't mean they were more important, it just means they were closer to the Lord than were the other disciples. Now, let's go to Mark chapter 13. Because this is interesting to me, that we often enlisting the occasions where the three were together, we, we leave this one out sometimes, at least in some of the lists. He was there when there were certain disciples that asked about the destruction of Jerusalem. And Matthew doesn't tell us this, but in Mark 13 and in verse 3, that as he sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite of the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, when will these things be? There's four mentioned here, but John was among them. There was that again, that inner circle, and he was part of that inner circle. John's mentioned in every one of those occasions. Now, I want to mention three passages here. That is chapter 13, chapter 20, and 21. He seems to be the closest of those three. So you get the picture of all the disciples, the apostles, and then there's this inner circle. And then of those three, there was one that Jesus seemed to be closer to than any others, and that was John. Some think that was someone else, but let's turn to John 13 and let's see what we see. Again, this is John writing, and part of the evidence that it was not someone else, but it was John, is that John, when, is the one when he writes, describes someone as the disciple that Jesus loved. It was John that did that, and that seemed to be re reference to himself. So go to John chapter 13 and in verse 23, uh, and you're going to see a reference to not, the name John is not mentioned. And we see here that they, uh, there was leaning on the, the this is at the, uh, in John 13 when Jesus had washed their feet, the Last Supper. Now leaning on Jesus' bosom, which means he was there close to him, closest to Jesus, physically closer, was one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now he loved all of them, but there's a special sense. There's a special relationship here. Go to the 20th division in verse 2. He's trying to trace references because this is a character study. Look at verse 2. 
that, that she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple, that other disciple we've already identified as being John, whom Jesus loved, he said. And we see the same thing in John chapter 21. We'll come back to John 21 in a moment at the breakfast at the sea and we'll see something about John. But verse 7, verse 20, he describes himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. So he was the closest of those. Now what do we know about his, about his age? He was thought to be the youngest of the apostles and the last one perhaps to die. And some of that is based indeed on tradition. Now we know a little bit about the man we are introduced, how he was introduced to the Lord, how we are introduced to him in the Gospel of John, his first calling, and then we see several things about his, his, the, the John the man. Let's talk about his life story as it is painted in the New Testament. So again, we're going to trace a number of references. We've already looked at John 135. We'll not take the time to turn there since we've already read that one. But he was first called as a disciple of John. That's where we, if this was put in movie form, the, the movie scene would open, seeing John the Baptist, and he has some disciples, and there's two of those, and one of those is this man named John. Well, we go from there. In John chapter 1 and in verse 40, he was called to be a follower of Jesus. So he is a follower, a disciple of John, and then Jesus calls him to be a follower. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. He was called while he was fishing. That was his occupation. And so, again, if this was on a film, we'd see now a scene at the uh, Sea of Galilee. He's out fishing and washing his nets. And Jesus comes and calls him, and he leaves his boat. He leaves his father and the hired servants. Along with his brother, they now become disciples and followers of the Lord. He tells them, I'll make you fishers of men. He was called to be an apostle. Luke chapter 6 is quite interesting here because Jesus had gone to the mountain and prayed, and he prayed all night long, according to Luke 6 and in verse 12. Verse 13 says, when it was day, he called his disciples to him, and from them he chose 12, whom he named apostles. There's already been called to be a follower of the Lord, and he is a follower of the Lord, but this is an occasion where he calls the 12 to him after he prayed all night, and he's going to make them apostles. And notice verse 14, Simon, whose surname is Peter, and then Andrew, his brother, and James, and there's our John mentioned. He was one who was named an apostle. He was there present, according to Mark chapter 1, at the healing of Peter's wife's mother. That was quite a notable miracle, and that seemed to be a miracle that made a change in Peter because it's the next chapter where Peter has a deeper humility than he's ever had before. That must have been a notable miracle for them to see the healing of, of Peter's mother-in-law. And John was there, the text says, to see that, and he witnessed that. But now let's turn to Mark chapter 10. Now this... Seems somewhat contradictory, and I'll let you work that out in your own mind how that could be. There could be those who vie for power, but at times they, they seem to be contradictory and they are people of humility. John was a man of humility, but there seemed to be an occasion, perhaps prompted by their mother, as you know from other passages, where he was vying for power. Let's turn to Mark chapter 10, look beginning at verse 35. This is part of his life story. If we're going to tell his story, we have to show the warts along with everything else. So look at verse 35. Verse 35 says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, uh, we, want to, uh, we want you to do uh, for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What is it that you want me to do? They said, Grant us that one may sit, one on your right hand, and the other on the left in your glory. And what, they, what are they talking about in your glory? It was a, a materialistic concept of the kingdom. The, the kingdom is a material kingdom. You're going to establish your kingdom, and when you do that, we want prominent positions in the kingdom. One of us would like to sit on the right hand and the mother on the left. On other occasions, the mother was asking that. That might have been prompted as much by their mother as it was from them. 
Well, now, Jesus' mother was put into the care of John. Notice this in John 19, that as Jesus is on the cross, turn with me to John 19, that Jesus, wanting to care for his mother, that Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, and he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. This is in essence your son now. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took him to, her, to his own home. In other words, he committed his care into John's hand, his mother's care into John's hand. He, he trusted John to take care of his own mother. He was with Peter when he heard about the resurrection. Now, I know when he heard about Jesus the first time, but let's turn to John chapter 20 and in verse 2. This had to be a, a high point in the movie if we were putting this in movie form that he was introduced to Jesus by hearing, Behold the Lamb of God. Here was the first occasion he ever heard anything about the resurrection. Notice at verse 2 that she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they've laid him. That's the first reference that he heard of anything about an empty tomb. And then he goes in and runs to the tomb to investigate and see it for himself. So the next thing we see, beginning at verse 2 through verse 8, he outran Peter to the tomb. He was eager to get there because he was very close to Jesus. They've taken him away, was the report that he had heard. Go to chapter 21 of the Gospel of John. We're still telling the story of his life. And in John chapter 21, he was the first to recognize Jesus by the sea. This is breakfast by the sea. And you remember the occasion as the disciples are in a boat, Jesus comes to them. And they don't recognize it as being Jesus. Now notice it, verse 7, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Well, he would have recognized him because he was the closest of all the disciples. Acts chapter 3, let's go on now. Jesus has been raised from the dead and has ascended to heaven. His close association with Jesus is over. Now he's one of the disciples. So let's go to Acts chapter 3. And he was with Peter at this healing in Acts chapter 3. What was going on in Acts chapter 3? Peter and John went up to the temple to pray about the ninth hour, and there was a man there was lame. And this was the occasion where Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but such as I have, give I thee, and he healed the man. John was right there with him. Very notable occasion. Let's go to Acts chapter 4 while we're still in the book of Acts. Let's go to Acts 4 and verse 19. Notice the boldness before the Sanhedrin. Because of that miracle in Acts chapter 3, and the preaching they were doing, they're called in before the Sanhedrin. So John is there being questioned before the Sanhedrin. Notice in verse 20, or verse 19, that Peter and John answered and said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge, for we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Notice their boldness. You're trying to tell us not to preach anymore. We're not going to abide by that. You, tell, you decide for yourself what you think is right. We're going to keep preaching the truth of God. That boldness before the Sanhedrin we see in this man named John. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. He was in the group that was sent to Samaria to lay hands to impart the Holy Spirit. You remember from our studies recently in 1 Corinthians, we've talked about how the apostles had to lay hands, Acts 8, in order to impart spiritual gifts. And so here the apostles come. Let's turn to Acts 8 and in verse 14. Notice verse 14, now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent Peter and John to them. What they do when they got there, verse 15, when they came, they, they prayed for them and that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And the text goes on to show they have to lay their hands upon them. And so John was involved in that. He was sent to Samaria. Well, I noticed that he was not seen again in Acts until after chapter 
12. So we don't set, see him anymore after Acts chapter 8. So you go through Acts 9, 10, 11, and 12, you don't see any more of him. But let's go to Galatians chapter 2. He was in the church at Jerusalem, and Galatians 2 mentions him as being a pillar in the church. In other words, he was a prominent person. He was one who had some leadership about him. In other words, he was recognized as being someone who indeed was strong in the church. Look at verse, verse 9. This is Paul talking about his experience about going to Jerusalem. And he said, and when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, one translation said they seemed to be somewhat. In other words, they were important people. John was one of the pillars in the church. We have no recorded sermon of John. Now, that's not true of Peter, and that's not true of Paul. We can go to Acts, and we can find records of Peter's sermons, and we can find records of Paul's sermons. You don't find a record anywhere recorded of a sermon that John preached. Now, he did some preaching all right. We have no record of that. His latter years were spent at Ephesus. He was exiled at Patmos, and that's where he wrote the book of Revelation. Tradition tells us that he returned to Ephesus, and he died in 98 A.D., and he was buried in Ephesus. And so he spent his time, his last days apparently at Ephesus that he loved so much and we'll say more about uh, Ephesus. This is Patmos where he was exiled for a while. Now let's talk about his writings. What do we know about his writings? Well he wrote five books of the New Testament. And so he was an important character as far as the writings of the New Testament. Let's talk about the subjects of those books. He wrote the Gospel of John, obviously. And so you have one of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but now John. That is written by the man that we're talking about, the Apostle John. What's the focal point? Well, the focal point of the Gospel of John is the miracles of Jesus, not just the storyline of the life of Christ, because there's some things he doesn't talk about. There's 92% original material in this book, meaning that the things that you find generally in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are not repeated here in John. John focuses on something else. What's his focal point? He mentions the miracles of Jesus. And he talks about these are written that you might believe. Many other miracles did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these, what is he talking about? These miracles, he recorded a number of miracles, starting with the turning of water to wine in John 2, climaxing with the miracle of the resurrection. It's the climaxing book. It focuses on the miracles of Jesus. He wrote 1 John, short epistle, not as short as the next, but he wrote 1 John. What was 1 John about? Abiding in the truth and abiding in love. He was called the apostle of love. We'll say more about that in a moment. An even shorter book would be the second epistle of John, only one chapter. And so here we have in 2 John, what's his point? Well, joy in truth versus the consequences of transgression. So he starts out in the book talking about there's no greater joy than to know your children walk in truth. So here is the joy that comes with truth and abiding in truth in contrast to the consequence of transgressing. You do not have God. Well, then there's 3 John, less known perhaps than 1 and 2 John. And that's because there's not, 2 John is so noted because of verse 9. We quote from that quite frequently. So 3 John maybe is not as quoted as much, but what's that book about? Well, it's about commending Gaius, and then it's warning about Diotrephes, very similar to the things that we find in 2 John, but it's a very short letter, only one chapter as well. Then he wrote the book of Revelation, perhaps in the mind of many the most difficult book of the New Testament, 
But in actuality, it is one of the simplest. In the message, the language is difficult, but the message is quite simple. It's not a hard message to comprehend. It's a book about victory of God's people. That what's going on here on earth in the persecution is really a reflection of a greater battle between right and wrong, between God and Satan, and God will ultimately be victorious. And that's the point of the book. So he wrote five books of the New Testament. I'm more interested in the style that he had in his writing that we need to know as we enter into studies of those books. He has a very limited vocabulary. That doesn't mean he was uneducated in the sense that he couldn't, he's writing by inspiration and so God could put any language that he wanted to, any vocabulary there. But it's a very simplistic vocabulary. Anyone who studies baby Greek or introductory Greek, you go off obviously and you start reading from the Greek New Testament in John 1 is where you start. And that's because it's some of the simplest language. It's a limited vocabulary in the writings of John. John repeats things a great deal. John will make a point and then he comes back and makes that point again and he comes back and makes that point again. Just in 1 John, for example, he'll talk about loving your brethren and then he comes back and hits it in another chapter and he hits it in another chapter and he hits it in another chapter. And so his style is repetition, driving a point home time and time again. But the greatest thing known about the writings of John is the writer of contrast. He, he takes a point and establishes something and then he puts the exact opposite. We'll say more about that here in just a moment. John was the last to write. And we say, well, yeah, of course he wrote the book of Revelation. That probably wasn't the last book to be written. Many think the gospel of John was written last of all. And that Revelation probably wasn't the very last thing he ever wrote. But that, be that as it may, if Revelation was, he still was the last to write. So he was probably the last apostle to write anything as far as the New Testament. Now let's go back to this contrast concept. And we learned something from this. We're going to list some lessons here in a moment. But one of the things I see in John is John is that writer of contrast, where Paul is an argumentative style, debater style, consequential. That is, if this be true, then this is the consequence. But John doesn't write that way. Here's how John writes. That you're either walking in light, and if you're not walking in light, you're walking in darkness. It's one or the other. John will contrast love to hate, and if I understand love, then I know more about hate, and if I understand hate, I understand about love. He contrasts truth to a lie, loving the Father versus loving the world in 1 John 2. He contrasts children of God with children of devil, or a sin not unto death and a sin unto death. When he mentions one concept, he'll throw the other opposite on the other side, showing the contrast. It's a way to learn. Not every writer wrote that way. Herbert Lockyer said, as a whole, John's style is contemplative. Not controversial, calm, not militant, simple yet profound, direct rather than oblique, transparent yet deep spiritual rather than historical. With a different style writer. And indeed we see that in the writings of John. Now let's talk about what the church fathers say about him. What do we mean by church fathers? The early writers, for example, who lived after the time of the apostles. These are not inspired men, so they could be wrong. But here's what some of the church fathers supposedly said about John. This is from Jerome. Some of these were men who knew the apostles. Polycarp, for example, was an apostle of John. But here's what Jerome said. He said that when John was old and not able to walk, others would, would, be, uh, would bear him to the service. That is, they would carry him to the services when he couldn't even walk. And then he would rise and lean on his cane, and in a quivering voice he would say, Little children, love one another, love one another, love one another. Now there's no text that tells us he said that, but that harmonizes with what he wrote in 1 John, didn't it? 
And he is the one that described himself as the one that Jesus loved. He focused on love. But Jerome tells that, that he stood at services and he would rise up and lean on his cane and in a quivering, aged voice say, love one another, love one another, love one another. And when he was asked, why do you keep repeating that over and over again? He said, it's because this is the Lord's command and enough is done when this is done. If we love one another, then everything else takes care of itself. Good point. Polycarp, who was one of his own disciples, he knew John. He was a friend of John, a follower of John. And Irenaeus focused on heresy. Serenius was a, let's start at the bottom deck. Serenius was a Jewish Christian Gnostic. And Polycarp and Irenaeus both suggest that John, the disciple of the Lord, having gone into Ephesus to take a bath, having seen Serenius inside, left the baths refusing to bathe and said, let us flee lest also the baths fall in since Serenius is inside the enemy of the truth. John didn't have much toleration for error. No wonder John would write saying that if you transgress and abide not in the doctrine of Christ, you have not God. He didn't have much toleration for error. What did they say about his death? Well, from early legend, it was said that on a Sunday after religious service, John went outside of the gates of the city. That would be Ephesus. Accompanied by a few trusted disciples who had dug a deep grave and he laid aside his outer garment which were to serve as a bed and he prayed once more and stepped down into the grave, greeted his brethren who were present and he gave up the ghost. Did that happen? I'm not sure. Tradition says that's what happened with John. There is no revelation about that. Now let's list some things and the lesson will be yours that we learn from John. That's a character study. What do we learn from looking at John? Well, I learned this. I learned the value and the importance of love for brethren. It must have been ultimately important because John focused on how the Lord loved him. And John wrote about, since God loves us, we ought to love one another. And he mentioned it several times in one book, one short book. And if tradition be correct, in his old age, that's about all he would say when he'd go to services. Love one another, love one another, love one another. Here's another lesson I learned from John. Those of wealth are not necessarily materially minded. I think we sometimes think that if somebody has wealth, they must be materially minded because they focus on wealth. You can be very materially blessed and not be materially minded. Abraham was. John come from a family that had some degree of wealth. There's no evidence that he was materially minded. In fact, just the opposite. Family tragedy should not make us bitter. It didn't seem to be with John. Remember, his brother was the one who was beheaded. But there's nothing in his writings or any report that we have about him where he developed bitterness because the Lord let that happen to James. The Lord spared Peter, but he didn't James. He could have turned bitter, but he didn't. I learned a lesson about humility. You don't have to promote yourself. There were occasions where he seemed to. But by the time he writes the Gospel of John, which is much later than his requesting a prominent place, he focuses not on himself but mentions himself as the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. And I learned that one's temperament can be changed. It was with John. And I learned that contrast is a way of understanding and a way of learning. And perhaps maybe in talking to your neighbor, if you can show them this in contrast to that, that helps them to understand. That's how John wrote. And he was very effective as a writer. Well, that's a character study of John. Maybe something there that helps you learn about the character John so that when we read from his writings or come in contact with a man, we know more about this man named John and some practical things we learn. We see the man, his life, his writings, and what the church fathers had to say about him.
There may be one or more present this evening who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism, that you might obtain the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing? <laughs>